the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Soft Talk Radio. Oh, Soft Radio Network. We've had a name change. I'm Neil Bradley. This is Behind the Headlines. My co-host today is Joe Quinn. Hi there. And we're joined this week by Juliana Barnbrem. Hello. And back in the studio. By popular demand. Pierre Lescadron. Say hello, Pierre. Hello, Pierre. <laughs> no, say hello to the listeners. Hello to the listeners. That's better. So, I hope you can all hear us clearly. We had a few technical sound glitches coming through at the beginning of the show, but it looks like we're back on track. So, it's the end of the year, and yes, it's the season to be jolly, but it's also the season to reflect on another crazy year on this planet. It was... I was trying to think of just in the broad strokes what happened this year, I mean, in the world in general, and the only thing I can come up with was snafu. Situation normal, all effed up, as in more of the same, but just bigger. I don't know. Things seem to be more screwed up this year than ever. So I don't know where we should begin. I guess we begin at the beginning of the year, mm-hmm. January 2014. I don't remember much because every time I think back to the beginning of the year, I just think of what happened in February in yeah. Ukraine which seemed to shape so much else that came after. And Ebola. Ebola. When did that break out? Apparently February. Okay, and that's still going strong. Um, it's great, but it's kind of receding lately with the winter. It's uh, interestingly similar to what happened with the Black Death in the Middle Age. This epidemic lasted for more than four centuries in Western Europe. And during winters, it almost died. And the following spring, it restarted even worse than the year before. So, it had the only similarity between Ebola and the Black Plague. Future with terror, I suppose. Yeah, just before we get uh, any further, we have our Skype option, our Skype call-in option back. So, anybody who wants to call in, any listeners who want to call in via Skype, uh, you can do so on a free Skype call, uh, no matter where you are. The instructions are on the uh, the blurb for our show and uh, from blog talk radio and on that.net. So if you want to call in by Skype, feel free. It won't cost you anything. Well, are we going to keep talking about Ebola or we go back to January? I'm not sure how to do this because <laughs> if you really try to think back on all the big events in the year, we'd be here all night. Yeah. Uh, topic by topic is probably the best thing to do. What was the most important, according to you? It's got to be, for me, it's got to be what happened in Kiev. Um, Because so much else ties into it. It had so many consequences. I mean, all events have consequences, but um, as someone looking at events, so much else going on clicked into place and had other meaning for me as a result of watching this happen. Yeah, there have been hundreds of coup d'etats before. There have been dozens of color revolutions. 
even going back hundreds of years, there have been dozens of other clusters of these types of things where a foreign power tries to subvert the power in another country by whipping up uh, some kind of a revolution. So it's as old as time. But to see this in real time and to see a response that was not anticipated by one of the players involved has uh, sort of, for me, it's just shifted the kaleidoscope a bit. You know, I think that you can understand geopolitics a bit better. Yeah, I mean, and before we get any further as well, I'm a little bit late on the uh, beginning of the show updates here. I just wanted to wish everybody a uh, happy winter solstice because uh, it's almost exactly the winter, winter solstice we are anyway, which is planet Earth uh, uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, and uh, it's about in just less than four hours from now will be the exact point of the winter solstice, which means four hours or so and one second, the light will be coming back. Happy solstice. And we will be bringing the light back with this show. Because we will be shedding light on the lies and the machinations (laughs) Of the evil elite and darkness, where all the shit grows in the dark. <laughs> that shining. is our token good news for the week. It started off we pretty shining. poetic there, and then you. That is poetic. And then the shit the, is the poetic word. <laughs> so, uh, depends how you use it. Anyway, <clears throat> not this Ukrainian thing. Is any symptomatic of something even more global? That is the awakening of the bear, the emergence of a of a world power. Uh, I think even that's incidental. You know, it's not the story. Um, if anything, the story is the collapse of the status quo or the the challenge, the monumental challenge. Yeah. But finally, we're all like breathing a sigh of relief. Finally. Or the exposure of the status quo. Effectively, exposure, yeah. The true nature of the status quo. <clears throat> yeah. That it's not about um, America or the U.S. being the leader of the free world as a result of freedom and democracy and uh, apple pie and uh, baseball, it's uh, as a result of what we saw in, what we are just talking about, we saw in Ukraine in, um, at the beginning of this year, which was effectively a coup d'etat by uh, the U.S. government, the U.S. State Department, the CIA, and the various uh, NGOs that they use to affect those kind of uh, Revolutions or color revolutions, as they call them, and um, of course that's been known to some extent in the past. But when it has happened in the past, it has happened very much under the radar, and there has no been no official uh, recognition or official in, in the mainstream media. Unfortunately, that's what passes for officialdom these days. Yeah, all this all stuff has, was but, more or less in the realm of conspiracy theory. Right, but it, uh, it was kind of brought. It was given more validity and brought into the world of Official dumb, even though the Western media tried to poo-poo it, it was brought uh, in, placed in an official and more official capacity by the efforts of the Russian government, effectively, because they weren't uh, back, they weren't uh, shy about um, coming out and saying exactly what so-called conspiracy theories, conspiracy theorists have been saying for a long time, which is that these color revolutions are entirely manipulated under the way that it's through these kind of phony revolutions. Uh, the CIA and the US Empire have been spreading its nefarious influence around the world for decades. They're very messy too. I mean, 
one of the things that strikes me from this year is the the level of we don't care how bad this looks, we're going to do it anyway, you know? I mean, there was no serious planning. I mean, you can imagine these guys planning things two weeks beforehand and say, okay, let's do that, you know? And the lack of proof, complete disrespect for the importance of of proof. It's because they were challenged. It's because they were exposed that that it appears that way. It followed the same plan that all of the others had had followed, but the problem is that this time it was... This time they faced a biggie or or somebody was able to stand up and say you're bullshitting. Exactly, yeah. There was somebody with with a voice, which is is basically Russia, and their media, uh, primarily various kind of state media organizations like RT and stuff who are able to at least put up a good fight against the Western propaganda, uh, which was telling everybody that this was a wonderful um, Ukrainian revolution for freedom and democracy. And the Russians threw a, a monkey wrench in the works or a spanner in the works or whatever you call it. Um, they upset the apple cart a little bit and the U.S. did not like it. They were very, very unhappy about the fact that they, that they did that and the fact that they were exposed over it. And it led to all sorts of hilarious antics uh, at State Department press conferences when people like Jen Saki and various uh, military puppets were dragged in to try and explain what was going on and why Russia was acting this way and, and try to convince everybody why Russia was still evil and they were the bad guys. And it was very funny in some situations where... Um, one notable case where this uh, military dude standing beside Jen Psaki in a State Department press conference tried very hard to, on the one hand, uh, admit that NATO had been pushing towards, had been expanding into Eastern Europe and that was a threat to Russia. But on the other hand, Russia shouldn't see it as a threat. Uh, so it was interesting to see him try and explain that one in any kind of coherent way and he didn't, you know. And he was lampooned, at least on uh, the non not non Western press, he was kind of lampooned particularly by Russian press and on RT uh, and by the alternative media. Uh, <laughs> yeah, anyway. In contrast to the rash way the Western power, the US Empire approached the Kiev problem, you have the Russian leaders in general, and Putin in particular, they displayed, I think, a high level of intelligence and diplomacy. They didn't fall in traps. They communicated brilliantly, confidence within the, their population. And, uh, well, I don't know what we bring tomorrow, what tomorrow we bring, but so far, I think Russia is the winner. They're on the political level, on the media level, and uh, there's a big change compared to all previous uh, similar events. Well, in in one sense, everything has come around 180 degrees. It's more complex than the way I'll paint it. It's, it's a bit black and white, but as one British journalist who's based in Moscow put it to me after reading political pornology, he's like, "This is this is amazing because I'm reading about examples of psychopathy and the how polarization of society works." in the historical context of the Soviet Union in which the study was founded, in which it was sussed out that a certain percentage of the population is psychopaths and they rise to the top and that's how everything's corrupted. And he's now in Moscow and he's reading this from 60, 70 years ago 
and he's seeing the exact same things, only they flipped around. And it's happening in the centers of power of the West, Brussels, London, Washington. And it's obviously, when I say it's more complex than that, it's because, well, back then, uh, the British and the Americans were no saints in comparison to the Russians. Which isn't to say that the Russians are saints per se in this situation, the good and the bad, but the flip of at least the processes of polarization, the way society ends up collapsing. Because that was what happened. The USSR collapsed. And I think back to some earlier articles from we had on Southland, like Dmitry Olav, the, Amer- the Russian guy who lived in the States and was warning years ago. Um, I see the same things happening here. It's going to happen. I think this year we just had a kind of jump start of that process. But for anyone, for us watching, we've seen the signs for years. Um, what's astonishing about it all is that it's, it's purely the result of their own doing. We've said it many times over the course of the year. Oh, my God, the EU or Washington is shooting itself in the foot. By their aggressive actions, it's only going to have consequences, negative consequences. For everyone, but first and foremost, for their own situations. Um, the big eye-opener for Europeans. And this is where, it's, you see, it's, it's gone beyond just, oh, we can ignore those people because they're conspiracy theorists. Part of the reason why there's been such hysterical statements made in the media is because that's all they're left with. They have a situation where they risk ordinary Europeans, even those in government, going, hold on a second, something strange going on here. They're beginning to, to see, it's not just that they're beginning to see the current reality more clearly, it opens up the history. It, it completely changes the whole perspective of the last 60, the era since say, World War Two. Yeah. Where before, the conspiracy theorist was the one who pointed out that, hello, military bases, U.S. military bases across Europe, we are effectively U.S. occupied. Yes. Now people, to see it for themselves and understand the context better as a result of actions this year. Yeah, it's, no, uh, it's not due to random chance that today in Europe, one of the main supporters of, US, of the U.S. and the U.S. sanctions against Russia is Germany. Let's not forget that since World War II, Germany is literally occupied by U.S. forces. There are about 100,000 soldiers, U.S. soldiers, on German land, German territory. So it's not a free state. Maybe that's one of the reasons why Angela Merkel is supporting the sanctions against Russia that are so harmful to the German nation that the German nation politician never gave more concern about uh, the well-being of the citizen, but it's also harmful for the industrialists, for the companies who are pushing and lobbying for reducing the sanctions. Well, we've talked about this in the past, and one of the most likely reasons why uh, you have major European heads of state um, falling in line, apparently, uh, behind the U.S. and not acting in a very rational or self-interested way uh, is most likely to uh, blackmail. And Putin himself said that not directly about the EU, but he mentioned world leaders being blackmailed. 
effectively by the US <clears throat> and they had evidence that that was the case, you know. So if you think about it for a moment, um, I mean, with the story a couple of months ago about the NSA bugging Merkel's mm. phone, you know, I mean, that was just a little intimation of probably something much bigger behind the scenes, not just with Merkel, but with other EU leaders, key ones. And I'm sure the NSA, I mean, that's what they do. That's their, their job description is, it's, you know, it's still a bit of spying here and there, but spy in particular on influential people around the world and yeah. get the dirty goods on them and hold it over them and ensure that they play the game our way. And I would say there's a very high likelihood that um, Merkel and others uh, are being blackmailed. Because um, you see a lot of, quite a few uh, dissenters within Germany and in other European countries. Um, but, you know, they would tend to be people who are no longer in the spotlight. You know, Gerhard Schroeder is very, uh, former Chancellor of Germany, is very, um, he, you know, he's, he's apparently good friends with Putin or to, to a friend uh, to one extent or another. And um, and he has been spoken out against sanctions and other people have spoken out against it. But those people, they're not in positions of power, so they're not being blackmailed. But then they are under pressure from people who are being blackmailed. For example, Merkel would say, listen, you can't come out too strongly against uh the policy that we're following here because um, I have to follow a policy to the wise uh, that you should understand why. So don't kind of um, and put me in a position here, you know, where, where I uh, where I might uh, lose my lose my position and so on. But, then, but ultimately it comes down to them uh, not really being more interested in their own positions of power uh, than... Um, and in the welfare of, of their country and of the people in their country because, you know, you could say theoretically if Merkel had had any backbone and she would say, well, you know, screw you and I say, I don't care, you can say what you want. In fact, I'm going to preempt anything you say by exposing I mean, one strategy when you're being blackmailed is to come out and, and tell the world that you're being blackmailed and, you know, take the hit type of thing and lose uh, lose your position but do it as a... As a, on, on a matter of principle, on, 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 yes, for your country, effectively. But I, of course, those people would fall victim to uh, um, the idea that, well, if that kind of a scandal came out, it would be more than just you, Merkel. It could cause a serious crisis of confidence. It could cause, you know, a serious uh, political and even social issues in the country. I mean, you're risking the the, the stability of, of German society by doing that. You know, blah blah blah. You know, so they use all sorts of excuses to not, you know. Show any courage. I would just qualify that a little bit. You said that they, it's, it's because they don't care enough about their own position to be able to challenge it. I'd say it's because they identify their their position, their power, with within this Atlantic alliance. Well, that's and what I said. That no. They don't want to upset. No, I didn't. I didn't say that they don't care enough about their position. They don't care enough about the people. Oh, you said their position, but you meant the people. Uh, just uh, about this point, how can you explain the recent change in position relative to Russia taken by France and by Austria? Apparently, France Hollande kind of grew a backbone overnight, stated that sanctions against Russia should be reduced. So is he playing the role, the, doing to benefit the interest of the French big companies? Or what's yeah, going I, mean, on? I think in all cases, there's a, there's a struggle behind the scenes, depending on the country, there's for and against type of thing, and it depends who 
But it's still to be seen because we saw the same with Markel actually in uh, I think it was in October, October yeah. where you go like, oh, she's backtracking, you know, she's yeah. she's gonna be, and then two weeks later she was like, no, more sanctions, you know. So it's like they don't even know where to go. Even if it if they lose space by doing that, I think maybe one of the yeah the things they've realized this year is how much they depend or and they are yeah. tied to. This kind of blackmail and the whatever the U.S. Yeah. and its allies want. I mean, because they don't seem to have any freedom. One day they say exactly, yeah. maybe, um, so just, and then no, 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 we're following Washington again. Yeah. So just to clarify what I was saying, maybe I didn't, I didn't express it correctly. What I'm saying is that Merkel is being blackmailed most likely, and she doesn't um, have enough courage to just sacrifice her position as chancellor uh, for the in the interest of the of the German. Uh, nation, the German people, the German economy, whatever you, whatever you want to call it, and its interests in having close ties with with Russia, she's willing to uh, to give in to the pressure being exerted on her through some kind of blackmail, and to follow through with the, the U.S. Uh, anti-Russian policy to both save her own position and well, yeah, basically to save her own position in power. Um, because she would lose it if she didn't follow uh, the dictates of of the U.S. You know. Yeah, the, this is this is the the blackmail that they face. They can turn your own country's media against you in a flash. You see, the, it's 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 not just that the president goes, "Well, am I going to get a call here from Washington telling me, you know, mm. oh, remember we have those photos." It's like there won't even be such a call. What you'll just notice is that the press will start to start, the press office in his own country will start to turn on him. And before you know it, he's got major protests on the streets. And Obama just comes in at the very end to say, oh, yes, about this situation in country A over there. Yeah, totally better if he steps down. Sneaky, sneaky. But all the work's been done in the month beforehand to get him out or her, whoever it is. Yeah, an example that comes to mind is François Hollande. In France, actually, a few months ago, a scandal was relieved, uh, released. Um, François Hollande had an affair with a French actress, Julie Gaillet. And it was released all of a sudden, out of the blue, after two years of relationship. And in all the magazines, all the tabloids, you had leaked pictures. So the question is why, after two years of silence, all of a sudden, all the old media sphere is... Uh, Parroting this information. So, if the black, the problem with blackmail is that uh, when you've used the information once, mm-hmm. you cannot use it. Well, that's what I was saying. Is the strategy to to deal with blackmail is to simply expose it yourself. You don't live under the threat of someone else uh, exposing you <coughs> with the secret information they have over you. Uh, you simply release it yourself. That's the only real thing that you're that you can do in that situation. If you find yourself in a in, in a situation where you're being blackmailed. The best option you have is to go ahead and, uh, you know, publicly expose yourself—not literally, but you know—and uh, uh, and that way you you maintain a little bit of control over the situation. If you leave it up to the blackmailers, you you have no control. Effectively, if you you know, because basically you have to do what they say. Uh, you bow down. You're basically their, basically their slave, and you don't even know if at some point they may just go ahead and, and release the information anyway, because you know they're done with you. 
it's a very bad position to be in, True. and anybody with any sense True. would realize, okay, it's my own fault uh, for not being careful enough, whatever, and take the hit, but try and salvage something. And then you're free. free. Yeah, and then you're free, and then you can... But, you know, obviously that requires a particular caliber of person, and probably you don't have that kind of... many of those kind of people in in politics these days, you know. Yeah, you need great, brave leaders like François Hollande. Exactly. But you need to be smart. You need to have seen it coming and being able to anticipate, okay, this will happen, that will happen, and so on. I mean, Russia didn't just stumble into this situation. They set up RT in 2005. As of this year, it's now had 2 billion views on YouTube. It's the most watched media channel on the planet. On on the Internet. It's essential. On the Internet, uh, yeah. yeah. Only on the Internet. YouTube. But then... But then uh, I think the ratings for terrestrial TV are dwarfed by what's seen on the internet these days. Mm, yeah, well, um, mm. uh, this being said, uh, this move with Russia TV, the, uh, Russia today was essential, but it's still small in the world media sphere. When you think about the, this recent ruble collapse story, ruble, ruble, ruble collapse story. For 99% of the world population, the ruble collapsed. All right? right. Agree with that? You're going to say it didn't. No, it didn't. Well, tell us. Okay. So, for since between October and now, or before the attack, the ruble dropped by about 15% for very clear and normal reasons. Oil price dropped. There are some loan repayment to be done by Russian companies. So Russian companies have to buy dollars, selling rubles, to pay their loans. And, uh, and the sanctions, economic sanctions against Russia, weaken the Russian economy. Hence, the normal drop, non-dramatic, of the ruble. However, on Monday 15th of this month, last Monday, the ruble collapsed from uh, 58 rubles for $1 to 65. And the day after, Tuesday 16th, it dropped even more to 75 rubles. For one dollar, it's a lot. It's about almost fifty percent. Okay, end of the story for most medias. But when you check the charts and I check today, because I thought, yeah, there has been a major collapse, and uh, that's pretty serious. Actually, on Wednesday, the ruble recovered, and today, I mean, the closing of the market on Friday, 5 p.m., the value of the ruble was exactly the same as before the attack. So for three days, it's been stable. And when you check what happened. Putin decided to increase interest rates to 17%, and the Russian central bank bought massive quantities, probably dozens of billions. This being said, you think, yeah, but maybe the sanctions, the drop in oil price led Russian actors, individuals, and companies to sell rubble because the future was uncertain. But when you look at statistics, there was a spike in volume on Monday from the beginning, 8 a.m., And most of these transactions occurred in London. So there was a concerted action to declare an economic financial war against Russia and destroy its currency, and therefore destroy the country. But it didn't work. It means that it's a political victory for Russia. But it also means that speculators like Soros in 1982, destroying the, the British pound, or the, the attack against the French franc in 1982, this time the speculators lost. And they also lost financially because in order to destroy a currency, what they do is that two tactics. A, the speculator, you want to destroy the ruble, you 
borrow a ruble and you sell it to buy dollars. So a ruble goes down, you sell a lot of ruble. But with interest rate at 70%, it's risky because you have to pay back the interest rates. So you have to make a lot of profit. Ruble has to keep going down. And the other tactic is what is called short sell, naked short sell. It's nothing sexual. It just means that you, you, are, you sell ruble and then you buy it later. Instead of buying it now and you sell it later, you buy it now when it's quite high and you sell it later when it's cheap because it's collapsing. So you make a lot of money. But this time it didn't collapse. So this, in the end, the speculators lost a lot of money. The snake it short sale failed totally. And Russia made money because the central bank bought a lot of rubles when it was low, around 60 or 70, and now it's, uh, it's back at uh, around 50. So they have a lot of rubles that they will be able to sell later when the market is quiet and make some profit. Right. But it's, it's, I mean, the ruble has lost. It hasn't just been the recent currency speculation that was the attack. It was previous to that with the, with the manipulation of the oil price, etc. Sure. I mean, in the past six months, uh, I think, um, yeah, but six, but six months ago it was uh, 34, 35 yeah. to a dollar. And now it, today it's uh, 58, 59. Yeah. So, I mean, that's uh, 40, uh, yeah. no, I don't know what percent of that is. Yeah, quite a lot, you know. Over six over six months, and it's linked to economic sanctions and yeah. oil price collapse, and that's yeah, totally so logical. An overall uh, attack on the ruble, the final, you know what I mean? Over Speculative. The past, yeah, over the past uh, six months or more, uh, they've been kind of uh, in various different ways. They, uh, the ruble has been suffering. The Russian economy has been being attacked. The most recent one that you've been mentioning is the is the speculation on the current currency specifically, uh, but. Yeah, so rightly enough, you said that it didn't have the effect that they hoped it would because it recovered quite well in the past few days. Well, overall, it has suffered, but True. not to this. People are saying, uh, you know, the, the Russian economy is, uh, is is grave crisis and mm-hmm. there's going to be food queues and all this kind of stuff. You know, I mean, it's something that countries have experienced, like you said before, and it's not disastrous. It hasn't been disastrous in the past for any countries where the currency takes a serious hit. Uh, they come back from it, and that's what the Russians have been saying, that this is not going to last, it can't last. Russia is too well integrated into the into the global economy, and specifically kind of, um, uh, it's, um, it has it has specific, uh, um, you know, relationships, not necessarily with, uh, maybe the relationship with the West and the US isn't, uh, isn't so good, but they've been building relationships, economic relationships with um, uh, other countries, like the BRICS countries in China, and that's more than enough to support them through any kind of a crisis, you know. And they have deals. The Russian government has, has a deal specifically with China uh, for this kind of a, an attack on its currency where they support each other's currency. They made an agreement in October just passed that they would support each other's cur- currency in the, yeah. in the context or in the event of an attack. So, And that's what apparently, I don't know if they activated that plan yet, but that uh, is there available to them if they need it. And Russia is strong. Russia has only 9% outstanding debt. Most Western countries, it's 100% or more debt. More. They have only 9%. And their reserve is $420 billion. So Russia today is a strong country economically and financially, way sounder than the US or the UK or countries well, they, that attack. They also bought more gold. And, sure. and with the... Um, I would think, I mean, I don't know what the uh, details are in terms of the uh, all the deals they've been striking and stuff, but if the ruble is a little bit lower, 
it may have been temporarily advantageous to some countries to make deals with mm. Russia right now. So in terms of volume, have they really, really lost anything? I mean, yeah, you get less for what you used to get more for. But if you're, if you're striking more deals and making more alliances all over the place, while the U.S. is looking like the thief of the world, then in the long run, maybe you end up being better off. You're right. It's uh, one of the the main bone of dissension or contention in Europe between Germany that advocates a strong euro and countries like France or Italy, Southern Europe, that advocate for a weak euro. Because when you have a weak currency, you're more competitive on the export market and on international markets. But imports are more expensive, so it's a it's a trade-off. Mm-hmm. It's a bad balance. But talking about trades, uh, this week a second major gas gas agreement was signed between China and Russia for 300 billion or billion cubic meters of gas. Billion, billion eh? because. Uh, 350 um, b- uh, billion dollars. Mm. It means that with this trend, on top of the uh, first gas agreement that occurred a few weeks ago, Russia is clearly pushing its gas towards the east. It means the gas is not reaching uh, Europe anymore, or less and less, because Ukraine is uh, the, the transit through Ukraine is problematic. Uh, Norway, Netherlands production is dropping. So there is a, a short-term fundamental problem of energetic independence for, for Europe that will have to import liquefied gas from uh, shale gas in, uh, in the U.S. Instead of costing $300 a, a cubic meter, it's $450 a cubic meter. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so overall it's been, um, I mean, at the beginning, even like we're talking, the beginning of this year began the process of revealing uh, the kind of, the secret or the hidden, until now, largely hidden machinations of the of the of the West, how they did business, and that was given a spotlight was shone on it. Uh, like we said, primarily through the exposure it was given uh, by the Russians and by Russian state media, which you know because it was being hyped in the West as part of the West. Europe and the U.S. is propaganda, anti-Russian propaganda machine. They had to pay attention to what was going on, and therefore they couldn't, uh, even by their own very low standards, completely ignore what was being said by the Russians in response. So that in that way, uh, they themselves have to expose the truth, even though they tried to, you know, uh, you know, lie about it and twist and manipulate and distort the facts. This, it's still the facts about what is going on still got out and a lot of people in the West, certainly a lot of people who beforehand maybe didn't understand it, got to understand much better uh, or got a much better picture, a much clearer picture of the way the West operates. Um, so in that sense, it was, uh, it was a, it began this year in a very, uh, it was a very revealing uh Start, yeah. start to the year, you know, and, and it all started with Ukraine. I think it cleared up a lot of the fog in the alternative media as well. Mm. So you've got a, a fringe of people who have been aware, at least since 9-11, probably some some of us since before that, that there's a clique of globalists who basically own the world, or think they own the world, and act as if. 
and they more or less control everything. Nearly everything is done by design. It's all a big conspiracy. This put a spanner in that in the sense that their globalists are now, it's more particular. It's more identifiable than a more vague, the powers that be, the Illuminati, whoever and wherever. No, we're looking at specific centers of power in the West. And it's not a uniform us versus them where simply anyone who is in power, anyone in the world, they're all in it together. Yeah, at some level they might be, you know, they, they don't mean to be. Their intentions um, to accrue power in their own country or in their own region could argue that in end of all working together as one interlocking system. Well, no, there are people working in some countries who have a, a different vision. They too, they won't say we are against the New World Order, but by their actions, that is what they are doing. We're against the New World Order as is promulgated by George H.W. Bush and the Western Atlantic Alliance. And that's, I think, there's still scope for conspiracy theory, because I have one. All right, let's hear it. My conspiracy theory of the week, of the year, is that eastward expansion of NATO began right after the collapse of the Soviet Union under Clinton in 1991. NATO started to, after saying, telling the the Russians that they would not expand eastward, they went ahead and did it under Clinton. Uh, so my conspiracy theory is this was planned, you know, what, 25 years ago? Uh, that when the Soviet Union collapsed, they said, okay, we need to get in there and uh, take Russia apart, effectively. So let's facilitate that. Let's expand into Eastern Europe and get right up to Russia's uh, doorstep to deny them any buffer zone, essentially, because um, you know, every country likes to have a buffer zone uh, between it and its supposed enemies, you know, because your enemies are right on your border. It's very easy for them to infiltrate into your country, obviously, because they're right on your border. But if you have a state that is kind of neutral or aligned with you, at the very least neutral or ideally aligned with you, then the, your enemy has to go through that country, has to start operating in that country to launch an attack against you. And the kind of attacks we're talking about here is color revolutions or even military operations you know, on the ground. So that's Ukraine was uh, <clears throat> a very important buffer uh, zone or buffer country for Russia. <clears throat> so NATO started this eastward expansion to to essentially get to Russia's doorstep and more easily, therefore, you know, infiltrate, destabilize, and break it up as they wanted to. And um, but my kind of conspiracy theory is that part of that plan was okay. So they wanted to do that for pure kind of expansionism. They also wanted to integrate all these Eastern European countries into NATO and also bring them into the EU, and which is more or less American aligned. But they did that with the knowledge that Russia was going to not like that and would respond with kind of aggressive, some kind of a defensive or slash aggressive action against NATO expansion and that that would play into the West's hands by reawakening the fear of Russian expansionism in European, particularly Eastern European, but also Western European, Western European countries 
and then it will be a kind of a feedback loop, you know. Uh, so you provoke. Yeah. What you want to do is That's bring all of Europe right up to Russia's doorstep into the Western NATO alliance. Uh, and you do that by bringing them in nominally as just partners, etc., but knowing that Russia will respond and scare the crap out of them so that they will flee even further westwards into the arms of Mother Uncle Sam. Mother America. And, and, and so, I mean, so they secure Europe, but at the cost of losing other parts of the world, namely wow. Russia, this uh, growing BRICS alliance, they're losing China, they i.e. they're losing Eurasia. Yeah, they didn't foresee that Yeah, uh, at the yeah. time. You know, they didn't foresee that at the time. Um, certainly, I mean, the plan was to dismember Russia. Right. Uh, so they didn't expect that they would lose Russia. Their plan was to take Russia. But they didn't really see the, the course that Russia has, was going to chart, that it has charted over the past uh, 15 yeah. years, particularly under Putin. Yeah. And they also didn't... And because they didn't see that kind of a, a strong, powerful, uh, integrated, um, kind of solid uh, Russian leadership, so they didn't see that, they couldn't therefore see what that kind of a... a, a uh, authority or, or power in Russia would do, which is take these very smart, savvy uh, decisions in terms of foreign policy to, okay, you know, Europe and the West are our enemy, but we've got China to the and Asia to the East, and you know, we've got a, a navy and we've got airplanes. We can we can make friends in South America and India, and there's lots of other places, you know. So they, <clears throat> I suppose, they didn't. Uh, I didn't foresee any of that, but and that's why they're kind of so desperate at this point, you know. It's all gone a bit pear-shaped for them, you know. Yeah, it's uh, colors when you look at the recent evolution of Russia. In the nineties, it was a country that was t- totally destroyed, and uh, I think what was most unexpected is Putin himself, a leader that would manage to recreate the country, to develop the country, to give it back technology, science, industry political vision, geopolitical uh, um, doctrine, and uh, transform positively the country to such an extent. So the Western strategists were expecting a violent dwarf, and in the end, they face a wise giant. That's just the opposite, and that's much difficult to deal with. I see a lot of people complaining, but a lot of people, a lot of Western pundits and <coughs> internet pundits and journalists criticize Putin for is that he hasn't diversified the Russian economy and it's been a complete failure, which is true. He hasn't diversified the Russian economy. But he's had 15 years. I mean, I'd like to see them do uh, what he did with Russia in whatever way he did it uh, in 15 years, given came from, which was a country on the brink of being carved up by by Western uh, yeah. vulture capitalists. So what he did was the only thing, the best thing he could have done, which was Okay, he's not going to diversify the economy a la the Western kind of model and stuff, and you know, in terms of all sorts of manufacturing and, and you know, diversified manufacturing, many different kind of types. But he focused on Russia's strong point, which was resources, oil, gas, and minerals. And that was the best thing. With with assuming he knew he had to do it uh, very quickly, because he saw the threat at the doorstep. Well, then if you have if you have that very short timescale, you focus on uh, your best, uh, yeah. your best bet, which is what everybody else needs—the thing you're going to get most money from and the thing you can use 
as serious leverage. I mean, you can't so much use, you know, if, if Russia was a really good manufacturer, you know, the world's best manufacturer, the world's biggest manufacturer of chairs, you know, maybe you should have focused on making chairs or tables, kitchen cabinets, or, I don't know, uh, cars even. You know, maybe you should have developed a really good Russian car. I mean, compare that to what he has done, which is, I mean, the West would be happy to say, yeah, we don't want your chairs anymore. We don't want your kitchen cabinets, Russia. You're no good. But we have it, IKEA. Exactly. But they're a little more reluctant and it's more difficult for them to say, we don't want your gas and your oil and your uh, raw, raw materials, your minerals. Yeah. And I also think that Russia is developing its industrial sector that was brought to zero and that's developing fast now, but it takes some time. This being said, this economic miracle that occurred uh, over the last 15 years in Russia is all the more striking that it didn't happen with the imperialist tricks. Because we've seen period of economic booming in other countries in other times, like 50s and 60s in the U.S. But how did it happen? It happened to the looting of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to grow a small land when the small land exploits the rest of the big land. Russia grew organically, independently, without destroying any other country. Mm-hmm. Well, even diversification is a joke. Those who are criticizing him for that, I mean, it's not sustainable. They get, the minute they get in a conflict with the country where they outsource their, you know, produce these tires yeah. for us while we make the uh, the car, whatever the parts of the car are, and, and you know, and, I mean, they have the U.S., take the U.S. or even European countries, they wouldn't be able to manufacture one single yeah. thing out of their own resources yeah. unless... They keep depending on these other little countries that they first pillaged, and then they, uh, you know, they turn into slaves basically. So, it's don't tell scam. me that diversification is good in any way, seen as it is today. Yeah, the, because you're absolutely true. The way for economists in the mainstream economy world, diversification means developing the third sector, service sectors, mm-hmm. versus uh, raw material yeah. and industry. And actually, it's a scam to justify the delocalization of the existing activities that were in uh, developed countries in the 70s and 60s, i.e. industries. Mm-hmm. And it was said, yeah, but jobs in the service industry, it's cleaner, it's more interesting, blah, 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 it's less uh, dangerous, and the activities by themselves are less polluting. But the real reason was not that. Industry, uh, those leaders never cared about the quality of life of their worker or the quality of the air. What they wanted is to relocate activities where the costs were minimized. Mm. Slave labor, finding the cheapest slave. That's the only reason why they chose localization. And today it leads to what you say. It leads to countries who have destroyed their industries mm-hmm. or who saw their industries destroyed and were totally dependent on other countries. Mm. And yeah. the, reason that, the reason they wouldn't be complaining about Russia, Russia Focusing largely on its uh, on its industries and raw material uh, industries, if because uh, the West needs countries like that to produce those raw materials and produce them for cheap, but Russia wasn't willing to play that game and wasn't willing to offer essentially its natural resources up to Western companies to come in and you know essentially plunder you know and give Russia you know uh, the crumbs of the profits of it and take the the lion's share of the profits uh, for themselves. And out of Russia, yeah. and that's why they complain about it. So it's just all. It's all well, this, this is here's a telling. The, the the shit really hit the fan for the Bush government when it came to Putin. 
in 2003 when he dealt with Khodorkovsky. This guy, I've wondered, what was, what was he specific at that point in time? He was having meetings with Halliburton, uh, Dick Cheney's former company, in Washington. And they were about to sell a controlling interest in nuclear oil to, uh, I think, Chevron? Yes, that's one of the big U.S. oil companies. And Putin put the kibosh on that and said, no way, right there. And since then, he's been like enemy number one. And it had been going okay up to that point. He was supportive of the war on terror, blah, blah, blah. It was a very important move. Because when you look at the modus operandi described by Namo Klein, how imperialist powers, U.S. in particular, take control of a slave country, one key point is the transfer of the assets, industries, mines, in foreign hands, Aliburton and Co. In Russia, everything happened. They privatized, they destroyed the economy, they destroyed the industry, everything, everything. The big industrial and mining actors were not transferred to, into U.S. hands, but to the demonized Russian oligarchs, and some were nationalized eventually, like Gazprom. So today, you have a Russian industry and re- Russian mining industry that is controlled by Russian operators, private or public. That's a big difference. Yeah, and what you're saying there shouldn't, I mean, should be like, so? That's normal, right? That's how it's got. No, but that's the problem you see in the West for the last 30, 40 years. They don't invest in industry and infrastructure in the West because they want to go where they're going to get the biggest return on their investment. The capital is in the hands of people who are in it for themselves. They're essentially a class of Western oligarchs. That's the difference in Russia. This power over the capital, who decides what capital goes, was taken back in state hands. Clash of vision. Because when you go for this uh, delocalization, maximizing short-term profit, uh, individual interest, speculator approach, that predominates in the West, that's the first approach. And basically, you compromise long-term and short-term autonomy, industrial competitivity for the short-term profit. In Russia, another ideology seems to prevail. It's an ideology based on a sustainable development, independence, progress, technology, science. Things that don't yield a high return on short-term but eventually, after years of investment of development, that will lead to a strong, autonomous, independent country. If you look around the world, the main problem for the U.S., the main problem that other countries have with the U.S. or why they become enemies of the U.S. is because they're net exporters of uh, energy, of oil and gas. Um, the U.S. is, uh, China, for example, isn't, Somewhat isn't a problem, and because first of all, it's kind of far enough away. It's not, uh, and it's all, but mainly it's um, it's a net importer of of gas and oil. It requires gas and oil, so it's not a threat. But the countries that uh, <clears throat> produce uh, enough oil in this world and are not under the thumb have a different vision. Aren't willing to be planned states of America or immediately American enemies. It's Russia, Venezuela, Iran, and you know Middle Eastern countries. The Gulf states have always been kind of client regimes, but obviously Iraq was a net exporter of oil, um, and they, you saw what happened there. Libya had a lot of oil, you saw what happened there. Um, so any country that has more oil than it, than it can use itself and can therefore then 
export a lot, it can control or has an influence over the price of oil. And the U.S. is energy greedy and energy hungry. It's like a it's like a drug addict for for oil for energy, and it doesn't produce enough of it to sustain sustain its own needs. It could if it wasn't such a hog, but it doesn't because uh, I think I mentioned this last night on the on the Spanish radio show. Uh, and last pro- week, probably. Oh, did I said last week? Yeah. Say it in yeah. Spanish. No. <laughs> I said in Russian. Uh, yeah. I mean, they, you know, it's like. The U.S. consumes by far the most oil uh, of any country in the world per capita, far more than China. You know, the U.S. consumes almost twice as, I think, twice as much oil as China when it has less than 25% of the population of China, which is ridiculous, you know. Um, So the U.S. could be energy independent if it wasn't such a hog and didn't want to, you know, hadn't structured its society, pure kind of consumerism and militarism and um and uh, actually over the last years the illusion of an energetically autonomous US of A emerged with the dis- with the discovery and exploitation of uh, substantial shale oil deposits. Frack off. Yeah fracking. Uh problem is with the barrel of oil dropping to uh, less than $60, well, it's probably a threat to net exporters like Russia, Iran, and others, but it's also a major threat to the U.S. economy. Below $65 a barrel, shale fracking is not profitable anymore. Yeah, exactly. So when Saudi Arabia and the OPEC, uh, some OPEC actors decide to not reduce the production, i.e., keep the price of barrel low, who are they targeting? Russia and or the USA? Well, th- this week, um, while the British Prime Minister, David Cameron, was gloating about how the collapse of the ruble, ruble, in quotes, means that Russia is no longer welcome in the international financial system, <laughs> as if you know they're just going to be excluded, literally, from, from trading in any way, because they won't be allowed to trade the ruble. Um, while that's happening, the head of the British uh, Oil um, Companies Association, whatever, kind of like a lobby group for British oil in the North Sea, is saying, we're on the brink of folding here. We're, we're going to have to slash jobs, slash exploration, slash extraction. Because this attack on Russia at all costs has just sacrificed London it's little jewel up in the North Sea. It's not profitable at sixty dollar uh, barrel. Cameron doesn't care. He would rather he would rather be in line ideologically with Washington on this, and would sacrifice. It has a high price. We'd have to ask high price to pay. And this being said, the thing in the U.S. with the quantitative easing, there was a lot of money available on markets, and with a negative or zero interest rates, there was no more notion of risk anymore. And banks were lending, lending, lending. And one of the major recipients of this country money was the shale oil or shale gas industry. The problem with the shale gas industry is that the reserves, when you mine, it lasts one or two years. So you have to make major investment to mine, to drill. Then for one or two years, you produce, and then you have to mine again. 
with a barrel below 60. So it's high, it's capital intensive, and there's a lot of debt involved. So with a barrel below $60, it means a big share of the U.S. industry, i.e. the shale or shale gas industry, is about to collapse, become insolvent, to default, and leave the banks with major, massive amounts of bad debt. We can have repercussion on a financial institutions level too. Yeah, so what has happened in 2014? Well, in the midst of the Kiev coup, followed by Crimea's secession, secession, <clears throat> things were really tense, and then suddenly something happened that just took all most media attention away from it. Malaysian Airlines MH370 was flying on route from uh, Singapore, Kuala, Kuala Lumpur, Kuala Lumpur Beijing. 389 people on board. March 8th. And it just disappeared off the radar and has not been seen since. And this is astonishing. It's just, I don't know, it's just, it's now got a Wikipedia page. We don't really talk about it anymore because people held their breath for a couple of weeks and went, well, a plane just can't disappear, right? And yes, it did. It has literally vanished. Tied black boxes, transponders, emitters of various kinds. In 2014, technology doesn't allow us to find a plane. And it included several anomalies. Um, you may remember uh, how the phones were kept ringing even three days after the uh, disappearance, which would be would have been impossible unless they were charged and they weren't underwater. Yeah. Um, and people were kept reporting, uh, seeing people they knew who were on board the plane on social networks, the QQ, the Asian one, and uh, Facebook and stuff. Uh, that was bad. There was a low-frequency sound. Um, if I remember correctly, it was funny, and you see this a lot whenever strange things happen, either actually, uh, things are actually anomalous that that no one has an explanation for, or if it's effectively a big lie that they're trying to cover up. You find these people, they drag people out of different places who come up with all sorts of wonderful, amazing and highly entertaining explanations to make the facts fit. You know, I remember during that time with the cell phones on MH370, there were people saying that it was possible for phones still to be ringing, uh, even... um, what are you saying? Maybe when it's underwater or if it's if it's dead or if the battery's dead, the phone can still ring. They're trying to, you know, brought out some telecoms engineers to come up with uh, a very unique case where it's just possible for this to happen, you know, because they can't, they just, nobody wants to come out and say, we don't know, because the authorities can't say we don't know, because then it's like, but wait a minute, you're the authority, right? You're meant to know. We want answers. We, the people, want you to use your authority to tell us answers that will make us happy and make us feel safe. So they kind of seem to understand that, so they always try to come up with an explanation, and it doesn't matter how much bullshit they have to throw out there. You know, they don't mind uh, coming up with the most ridiculous explanations. You know, it's funny. There was that, and there's a thing that supposedly there's a signal that your cell phone sends to the operator's tower, right. But they were saying, okay, in order for the cell phone to be sending that signal, the phone has to be on. Mm. 
But then they were saying, well, but it's, if it's on the weather, water, it can't be on. And then they contradict. I mean, none of the explanations make sense. And then uh, to go even further, uh, I think, uh, Joe, you wrote an article about the, uh, these, you know, duplicates and the, the planes that mm. people are seeing all over the place and airports, you know, in, in other countries saying, you know, there's going to be a, they're going to use that plane for. Yeah, that was a conspiracy theorist. Another conspiracy. And it didn't happen. Of course not. But it was remarkable as that single event was. Smack in the middle of a series of remarkable events in Ukraine. Mm. It came back in another way. Another Malaysian airline yeah. plane. With an H-17. Yeah. Well, we have um, Kent from West Virginia on the line, and he wants to talk about MH-17. Hi, Kent. Yeah, um as far as MH370, I um, from the originally heard it was I believed it was a um, it was stolen by um, the group that we all know Mossad, MI6, CIA, and um, uh, for the intention of a false flag attack, um, um, blaming Iran. Of course, we had the the Iranian, you know, initially. Well, there's Iranians on board with the false passports. I forget what the details of it were. And then um, there were the, it was all kinds of stories, you know, and, uh, you know, the plane went so high, the plane went so low, all, you know, it was all kinds of propaganda. But the, um, what what they, what there were is there was uh, what I thought were pretty credible sightings over the Maldives. There were like fishermen who would, um, probably would not be, um, not, not, well, they saw a big plane, they're out in the Oh, it's all this big plane go by, and that's about as credible as you know as anything because it's an unusual experience to them. I think it was flown, um, dropped down to the, you know, just over the ocean and flown to Diego Garcia, and they were going to use it uh, as a false flag because if you look at the map, if you, you know, from uh, Malaysia, and if you fly uh, due west across the ocean, the Indian Ocean, you uh, you cross the Maldives, and once you've done that, you've laid a trail. And then if you turn left beyond the Maldives, there's Diego Garcia. And if you turn right and you go up to the right, you go to Iran. So um, they could have fitted it out, and they could have fitted it out for extra fuel tanks and flown across to Africa and up the Atlantic and hit the United States. That was my plan. And then we had the, this um, unusual thing of these, remember these constant, like, week after week, the reports of these pings, remember that? Mm-hmm. Ping, you know, ping, ping, ping. And it just reminded me of the old movies where they would have the, the ticking time bomb, the Alfred Hitchcock movie, the kid on the, you know, on the, you know, the ticking time bomb, and the ting, you know, tick, 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 the clock, you know. And they were building the suspense up, and... Uh, I had, you know, and all the various other aspects of it, but that's my theory of it. And then, for some reason, I think they, uh, I, I followed. That was my theory, and I followed that. And then, after a while, I wondered, the, the ping sort of died down. And I thought, well, what's going to happen with that plane? I haven't heard anything about it. And then, all of a sudden, like within, there's another boom. Goes this MH17, another Malaysian plane. And I think what happened was they simply changed their uh, their focus from attacking Iran to attacking Russia, and they and they used another Malaysian plane because Malaysia is anti-Zionist, you know. Then that that fits into their whole 
you know, um, psychological of using another Malaysian plane. It sort of it creates, you know, it creates a symmetry that they, you know, fits into yeah. the plan. That's my theory, but, so, you know. I, go ahead. So what what are you uh, you're, you're saying that MH seven MH three seventy became MH seventeen? No, what I'm saying is they stole it and they they parked it on Diego Garcia with the intention of using it as a false flag. Right. And uh, they changed their plans. They those people well they were killed. Who cares what happened to they? You know the people that do this don't care what happens to the people. And they and the, and what what happened is if you could if you could take that plane. And they were going to blame it on Iran, and they, were, they would, you know, they parked it, and they and they fitted out with extra fuel tanks. And they could have flown it from either Iran or Diego Garcia across to Africa, and up the Atlantic to hit the United States. And um, so that was the plan. But somewhere in the in the meantime, they changed their they changed their targets. You know, there was maybe all this talk about. Maybe they decided that. They, they wanted it for Joe Biden's uh, kind of uh, vice presidential plane, so they just painted it up in, uh, you know, White House library, and uh, and now he's flying around on it. You know, they said, "Oh shit, we're not going to use this plane anymore. Let's give it to Joe Biden." The thing is yeah. uh, that Joe is trying to suggest in a humorous way that uh, here we're in the field of speculation. What we know, there's a bit of evidence after the takeoff. Indeed, the plane followed this route. Then there were anomalies in the altitude. It went down. It went up. It U-turned. There are several uh, pieces of evidence proving that. But after the last uh, passage over Malaysian land going uh, southwestward, there is no more evidence. It's open to speculation. We don't know. Actually, Pierre, just to clarify that, we don't even know that. They, they don't have the facts straight on whether A, the plane U-turn, B, it dropped altitude, or C, it did fly out in a westward direction towards Diego Garcia. None of those things have been established because yeah. there was so much confusion at the time, conflicting reports just from within Malaysia. We haven't even got to that point. All they know is the plane disappeared from radar and they haven't found it. Sure. Yeah, that's the bottom well, line. Disappeared and they well, that's the it. thing. They, you know, they they had this plan and they they produced all these 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 reports. And I, well, my thinking was that what is more, um, um, a fisherman out in his boat in the Maldives sees this plane fly over and uh, you know and if it's reported in the local Maldives press you know that is um, um, that's about as free of spin as I can imagine it being you know and it fits into my theory so that's why I like it so yeah, in other well, words it's going to be it's, we're just we're, we're left with theory making at the end of the day, and the problem is the plane hasn't resurfaced, and I don't think it is at this point. They've given up more or less, I think. So uh, we'll be left to just make up uh, make up our favorite theory and stick with it, you know. Yeah, and what's going on with this this massive uh, search that there was? You know, this private sector. Remember, they're going to bring in boats from all around the world and do this this search and uh, having anything more about that. I did hear that the uh, the president of um, um, was it uh, Kuwaiti Airlines or some of those airlines? In the, 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 there's an airline in the Middle East that's really doing big business, Kuwait Air or whatever it is. Uh, or, and um, he's a he's an Irish guy, I think. He was um, was head of uh, British Airways or something. Anyway, he came out and I forget what he said. He said he made a comment about it about a month and a half ago. 
and he said he did not think it was in the Atlantic, Indian Ocean anyway. So that, that's the last I've heard about it. But, but uh, I wonder if they have the, that, that flotilla down there, and, and I don't think they do because um, I think they, you know, they know what they know what happened, and all that all that stuff was just a charade. Yep. So. All right, Ken. Thanks for your call. So okay. we'll never know. All right. Take care, bye. We considered time uh, Diego Garcia somewhere else, some other airbase, either U.S. owned or affiliated or whatever. Uh, there's no evidence for it. Okay, well, put that aside for a second. What about motive? Well, Kent threw up one to use the plane for some later purpose. You can understand why people make that connection because another Malaysian Airlines plane had another incident in the summer. Problem there is that's a that's a different plane. Structurally, physically, that's a different plane. It's a plane that was <clears throat> used on this route regularly, flying from a route uh, Netherlands to um, Kuala Lumpur. No, where is it going? Some, Kuala Lumpur uh, every day, once a day. So there was nothing unusual about that flight pattern or the plane that was used on the MH17 flight. So. Yeah, well, the idea that they would... That... But I like he, his point that there's somebody making a symmetry, making a point of connecting the two. There's got to be something going on there. Yeah. Not necessarily that both were contrived for no, flag events. No, the first one could have been a natural event, and the second one was done uh, just to capitalize on it, to muddy the waters, to sow confusion, to sow conspiracy theories. That came up afterwards, uh, or, or simply to give people some explanation. People are crying out for anything that will, you know, explain the anomalous, right? Maybe, yeah. But I mean, the idea that they would have hijacked MH370, that the powers that be, the super, super secret dark overlords, would be forced to hijack a in-service commercial airline of uh, of Malaysian Airlines. Yeah, to do and something to, to, as bold to, as that, there needs to be an obvious payoff. No, what was it? No, but Nobody not, knows. No, but it's not even that. Do you think they need to go and hijack a plane, an in-service commercial airliner, because they need a Boeing? It's, it's, well, you don't really calculate that they need to blow up huh? a similar plane. Right, but no. Later on. Yeah, but, and there was, a, there was a payoff. There was a reason for doing it, yeah. to demonize the hell out of Russia. Right, but what I'm talking about here with the narrative of MH370 to suggest and other people have proposed that it was hijacked by the powers that be to use in a false flag attack. I mean, that, that just is, is uh, completely, no no disrespect to Kent, but it's completely outlandish and ridiculous if you understand who the people that you're talking about are. They don't have to go and hijack a plane to get a Boeing. Boeing is an American company. The top-level people in Boeing are rubbing shoulders, shoulders, soldiers, soldiers with these uh, with these deep, dark, uh, super cabal, high-level government type. I mean, you don't have to. If you want a plane, you go and buy one off Boeing to use in a false flag attack. Why would you bother going to the bottom of hijacking one from that? I agree, and the, and the thing is it adds extra complications when they know, don't meet them. Like, for example, the people, the family of the passengers, uh, families, uh, media. I mean, a whole lot... What are you going to do with them? You know, I'm not talking about feeling sorry for yeah. them because they don't. But 
you know, just the logistics of it, just to get a plane. Let's and look then, at the uh, options, yeah. And like then we can go to Boeing and say, hey, we're the CIA, we need a, we need a, you know, a, a Boeing 7, 737 or 777, just, you know, off the, off the books, black, black money, under the table type thing, just give it to us, we'll take it to our field, we'll paint it up in whatever colors we want, and we're just going to use it for, you know, you shut up, just give us a plane. Here's, you know, $100 million. Sure, no problem. There you go, there's your plane. Or hijack remotely. Remotely hijack a, plane, a Malaysian airline full of people en route to Beijing, and then we'll get all those people, we'll fly to Diego Garcia, we'll dump them all, we'll put them in a mass grave, we'll take the plane from Diego Garcia, blah, blah, blah. I mean, really. With Malaysia huh. and China not being like super allies or, you know, compliant to whatever they're going to, they, they want, you know, I mean, it sounds too, really too far-fetched to do something like that. Joe and, mentioned an, a natural event. Yeah. What are we talking about here? A lightning strike? It's in the sea somewhere? Mm. Well, they didn't find it in the sea, but we shouldn't be surprised about the disappearance of the plane. When you look at the, you go to Wikipedia, it's a list of disappeared planes, and there are literally dozens of planes that disappeared, and they were found again, in some time, despite extensive research. So it means that, well, it might not be, uh, it might be stressful, but the truth is that planes to disappear and never found again. So nobody knows why. It was vaporized by the death ray from Death Star. No, but that's, that is. that said this year was also very big on problems, electrical problems uh going on with planes. There were a lot of planes that had to land in an emergency, yeah. lost control lost And there were radar glitches as well. Yeah. In Central Europe radar you had glitches, planes yeah disappeared for several seconds, several minutes. So the no, question is... Uh, the full story is it was a first for Austrian and other Central European countries. A total of 13 planes disappeared from radar for 25 minutes each time on two separate days, June 5th and 10th. Then the question is, is it as mainstream media claim a dysfunctioning radars, but several radar stations experienced the same problem or maybe the other solution is that the planes did disappear for a while. That's why they were not spotted by radars for a while. So they're blinking in and out of our reality somehow. They were not detected by radars anymore. Where were they? Well, I don't know. It's uh, maybe in a twilight zone, maybe in a parallel reality, maybe in an alternative universe. But they came back. Those ones. It's high strangeness for sure. But then MA-17 wasn't. That was very much down to earth, pardon the pun. Um, completely heinous attack. Well, let's, before we get that, we should probably back up a little bit. I mean, Ukraine was... <clears throat> Putin is now being demonized at this point for aggressively taking Crimea... Mm-hmm. But that didn't happen. And for destabilizing Eastern Ukraine, the new Kiev government launches anti-terrorist operation. And Gaza is being bombed. That wasn't happening yet. But the reason I'm saying this as a prelude is because, again, while the focus had left the first Malaysian plane disappearing, the media attention then went back to the situation in Ukraine. And then, boom, in June... ISIS comes on the scene. ISIS, mm-hmm. ISIL, IS, and all its variants. Ice cream. Ice cream. This four-year-long 
civil war, in quotes, in Syria, more or less on the back burner, at least in terms of Western media attention, uh, Assad elected in elections uh, as president, confirmed again in early June. It's been, at this point, eight months since Russia saved Syria's butt by getting the U.S. to back down from, they have chemical weapons, we must bomb them back to the Stone Age immediately. Hmm. And then suddenly ISIS is on the scene and Syria are back on the agenda in a big way. And I think for the first time I saw clearly how something apparently unconnected, the situation in Ukraine with Russia, is all directly connected with situation in a completely different region. And that it's no, it's no accident that one thing is flaring up, you know, a thousand miles away from Ukraine. And then in the middle of the Operation Protective Edge, July 8th to August 26th, when the public uproar is growing and growing in the world, we start to have demonstration in all cities. On July 17th, MH17 is brought down, bringing back the media attention and the public attention from Gaza to Ukraine and the evil Russians who brought down the plane. Yeah, it's probably it's the biggest, probably the biggest lie this year. I mean, full-on onslaught. Putin did it. How do you know? We just know he did it. Just, just believe us. Hitler. The social media say so. Social media and common sense tell us that... Uh, blood on his hands. Big headlines across the British newspapers, you know. Putin has blood on his hands. Putin killed my babies. Uh, quote from some parent, apparently, all across the big, bold black letters in the, in the British uh, tabloid media. And it was kind of pathetic, really. It was, it was horrible and despicable and also pathetic uh, for those who could see what was going on. Um, no evidence whatsoever. But then again, when did the great British public or any other Western public need evidence to believe anything? Uh, when did they ever need evidence to be manipulated <clears throat> into to uh, supporting, you know, wars or profit? Uh, it's the kind of same old story, and it worked again. You know, it was a flashback. It really was evidence that nothing has changed in 60, 70, 80 years. You saw the same kind of headlines um, in British newspapers during leading up to the Second World War. You know, just replace Hitler or Putin with Hitler, and you're back uh, during the late 1930s, early 1940s in Europe. And you could probably go back uh, as far as... Uh, any kind of media has existed and you'd find a similar kind of uh, manipulation of the population through lies and propaganda and inflammatory statements and uh, you know provoking people's emotions to try and uh, get them to support an agenda of, uh, of an elite few to enrich themselves at the people's expense. And it's just, you know, you see repeat, history repeating itself over and over again. Nothing ever changes, you know, and human beings don't evolve either, you know. They're just as easily manipulatable as they have always been. And all by always, I mean, go back as far as you want in history. It gets worse. Because Hitler conducted invasive, invasive wars. Mm-hmm. Hitler was a bad guy, objectively. 
Mm. But today, Putin is not that. Mm -hmm. Putin is defending his country. Putin is doing good to his uh, people. Mm. And he's demonized like Hitler was, uh, I mean, was. Like Hitler was demonized after the Second World War. Because during the Second World War, actually, he was presented like uh, a Mm -hmm. very uh, decent uh, individual. I come forward to, you know, during the Vietnam War, when the headlines about uh, the Gulf of Tonkin. You know, mm-hmm. and the evil North Vietnamese attacked our boats, you know, uh, another lie, and people just go with it, you know, because they don't expect people, they don't expect their leaders, and amongst those leaders, I suppose, are the, is the media in people's minds, they don't expect them to come out with egregious and blatant lies. They would never ex- expect that big lie from their vaunted authorities, so they believe it. If... The authorities, they have, the authorities have free reign to tell as big a lie as they want and the knowledge that the people have a, a block to ever believing that it's a lie, to, to under, realizing that it could be a lie. If it's in the papers, if it's on the news, if the nice guy in the suit on the evening news says it, it must be true because he wouldn't lie. Yeah. But this strategy has some limits, like any approach. At the time of the Gulf of Tovkin incident, there was a total monopoly of information. It was a remote place, and you had some only mainstream media, totally controlled media, mm-hmm. who were spreading propaganda. Today, slightly different. We have social networks. There is internet. There are alternative websites, and uh, the lights only hold for so long. And you see, when you see the the figures, the turnover, the number of sales for main newspaper and even even TV channels. It's steadily dropping. Years after years, people are shifting from uh, mainstream media to uh, to internet, including mainstream sites, but also alternative sites. So that might be the only source of hope to uh, get freed partly to uh, this total hold of uh, propaganda. The, yeah, it's, it's changed with how information reaches people, but people are still Based with a 360-degree tsunami of lies. Mm. It just becomes... I mean, okay, we, we, we can lampoon these silly British tabloids like the other one was Putin's missile. Mm. That's it, two words. Yeah, He fired it himself from his own <laughs> private uh, missile launcher. Nevertheless, you, you, you get enough people to, cause if you say a lie so blatantly and so often do you realize that that's what they were actually saying when they, when they had that headline that that's the message yeah. they were conveying and that's the message that was received by at the kind of psychological substratum or at the you know the primitive system uh, psychological system within the average person what they received from that headline was that Putin personally shot down that plane and those people aren't interested in details. The average person is interested in thinking hard, thinking critically about it. They just want black and white basic facts. So, you know, if you took one of those people and, uh, you know, in X number of years asked them, you, they would probably tell you, the average British citizen would tell you that Putin shot down that plane. You know? <laughs> oh, that's the way they feel it. Maybe they, you know, if you quiz, quiz them on, they say, no, well, they had somebody do it or whatever. It was Putin's people did it. But on an emotional level, Putin did it. That's why they put that headline up there. Putin's missile. And it's obviously a completely false, by any standard, a completely false uh, headline. But it conveys a message, and most people only read the headlines. Putin's missile. That's ownership. 
that suggests that Putin himself, he owned the missile and he fired it. He's fully 100% responsible. And people get that message. That's all they want people to get, that message. Putin, 100% responsible for this. Uh, of course, nobody thinks about, obviously, Putin. You know, if it was, if Russia was responsible, it could, Putin may not have known nothing about it. Uh, it could have been some element of the military or even you know, take it further down. Um, Russia could not, may not have known that uh, the rebels that they were arming and funding and supporting in Ukraine were going to shoot it down. So, so the, the media didn't even allow for that, didn't even go that far. They wanted to demonize Putin. I mean, they could have demonized Putin by implication, but through their headlines, they wanted to implicate him personally because they wanted people in the West to, per- to hate Putin personally. And people do, did and do hate him yeah. because they blame him for killing all those innocent people. He has the blood, as far as the average British person is concerned, or the average American, he has the blood of 298 people on his hands, personally. Like as if he shot them all himself. Yeah, because... The... And that's obviously so far from the truth. Even if you allow for the bogus Western narrative, it's nowhere near the truth. So there's a, there's, there's a double lie in, in, in that, there's a, you know, there's there's the lie and the facts that they tell in the story, but then there's the emotionally manipulative lie of these yeah. big bullshit headlines that people just absorb into their the, sensorium. Yeah, they, they scaled it up for Putin personally, but yeah. it, it's been apparent across the board. All those headlines all summer about ISIS, these monsters, and I mean the the mm. portrayal of them, either. With select choice of images, of course, mm. we had all those beheadings and stuff, mm. and uh, the images of all these like the odd hundred people being lined up and mm. shot in the back of the head, mm. carefully, you know, freshly photographed, mm. and splashed all over the headlines. Mm-hmm. Monsters, monsters, monsters everywhere. scary monsters. They're talking to children, and this is the media and the government understand yeah. that they're talking to children because <laughs> if you if you what you would get from the average person if you asked him about Putin, what, what do we need to do about Putin? Or why, why should we do something about Putin? Well, he's a bad man. You get that from an adult. That's what I got from many, many adults about Saddam Hussein. So why did, why was, was, did the U.S. occupy and and occupy Iraq? Well, to, to get rid of Saddam. Well, why did they want to get rid of Saddam? He was a bad man. What do you mean, like the big bad wolf? Uh, or was he the boogeyman? Maybe was he? Maybe he was. I don't know. You mean another reference from a child's fairy tale of a, of, a, of a body? You know, was he like Darth Vader? Maybe you know the boogeyman. You know that you get that from adults. That's their argument. You know, and the thing is, that's what's conveyed to them through the media. It's not just through the media. I think that's actually what, like Tony Blair at the time said. Tony Blair used the words, "He's a bad man." How much more ridiculously childish can you get? Get the bad man. Nobody likes bad men. Get him. That's and people are being massacred on mass on that narrative. He's a bad man. Jesus Christ! It's just mind blowing, you know. I think that more and more they have to hysterize the the population because people are getting more and more used to the violence, and also because the level of lies, the inconsistencies, are getting so blatant that they have to disconnect the intellect and put people in this raw emotional state 
the only way for them to swallow those massive dissonances. Because when you look, the problem with the lies, there's no internal consistency. One line says white, white, the other one says black. This doesn't make sense. So people must stop thinking, otherwise they will immediately see that it's total nonsense. Yeah. So, and like you're saying, ISIS were they're bad men as well, and they're portrayed as bad men in a very graphic kind of way. I mean, you can't get any more fundamentally yes. or primordially bad than images and, like you said of videos of them cutting yeah. the heads off people and eating, you know, hearts and things. I mean, it's like out of a Hollywood movie, right? And this has been going on hardcore since 11 but mm-hmm. this June, a post-Ukraine situation is mm-hmm. noticeably worse. Yeah. Absolutely, and what ISIS is is effectively a paid and financed, financed and armed um, mercenary operation, uh, directly or indirectly uh, working to the agenda of America. And although there's some, I'd say there's some infighting and struggling going on in terms of who controls them, and there's different factions being funded and armed. Uh, on the part of the Saudis and the Gulf states who are heavily involved in that. But there, the Saudis and the Gulf states are act as kind of proxies for the U.S., proxy funders and trainers and armors and uh, of these kind of mercenary forces. But the U.S. reaps the kind of benefit, you know. I mean, they work hand in hand in hand, but there's a question mark over those Gulf states and their allegiance to the U.S. You know, you can imagine the kind of doubt and suspicion that would be would prevail amongst uh those kind of people. I mean, there's no honor among thieves type of thing. They don't really trust each other. They they work with each other while it's while they think their own agendas are being served. But at a certain point where it's like we're not friends anymore, we don't agree, you know, all bets are off. But I mean, the official history of ISIS IS ice cream is um is that they came from Al Qaeda in Iraq, as as in this guy uh, Zarqui who was the Al-Qaeda leader in Iraq, who was supposedly, he had the, he was the one who really had the first, in, in 2004, 2005, uh, 2004, I think, he came on the scene, and he had the great idea of fighting against the foreign American infidel invader of Iraq by attacking Iraqis <laughs> and killing Iraqis and launching a civil war against Iraqis. He didn't really care so much about the infidel at that point. Well, he said he did, but he decided he would attack other Iraqis, which just coincidentally worked in the interest of the U.S., obviously, because it justified their presence, or we've got to stay here until there's freedom and democracy that we came to, to, to give to the Iraqi people. So, so then uh, Zarqui gets blown up <laughs> in, a, in 2006, you know, because he's no longer useful. Let's get rid of this guy, um, if he ever existed. In fact, I think there's a quote, at the t- uh, a quote from the time... Um, from um, from a U.S. unnamed U.S. military intelligence agent, uh, and it's um, I think what it was what was it was on SAT. It's one of the mainstream newspaper. It said that at the time, talking about uh, Zarqui, they said that um, <laughs> they said we were basically paying up to ten thousand dollars a time to opportunists, criminals, and chancers who passed off fiction and supposition about Zarqui as cast-iron fact, making him out as the linchpin of just about every attack in Iraq, the agent said. Back home, this stuff was gratefully received and formed the basis of policy decisions. We needed a villain, someone identifiable for the public to latch onto, and we got one. 
That was al-Zarqi, who was the arch-villain in Iraq, who justified the continued presence of U.S. troops there until 2006 when they dropped two 500-pound to 500 pound bombs on a house that he was staying in, and there's a video of it. And you know, there's a sort of thousand pound bomb on a relatively small residential house out in the countryside in Iraq, surrounded by kind of date trees. And there's a video of it from the plane that the jet that dropped it. And obviously, it, when the bomb hits, it's a it's a cross, makes a big cross explosion. There's two explosions out on four on four sides. And it just obliterated the house completely and left a big hole in the ground, like a very large crater. And then afterwards, and he was supposed to be in this house. There was no house, just a big hole in the ground. And for 100 metres around, there wasn't much anything of anything else either. And then they produced a picture of him. So they had recovered the body. They couldn't find much of the house, but they found his body. And they took a picture, and it was in the papers that he got the torch villain, and he had a little bruise on his cheek. Well, otherwise he looked, he looked like he was alive, actually. But So he's remarkably resilient. But this just went to show how formidable this al-Qaeda threat was because these guys can survive 500-pound bombs being dropped in their head and then pose for a follow-up with a bruise in their cheek afterwards. So basically <clears throat> the official narrative came out of this guy, basically, and what he set up in Iraq. So that's a history, and you just heard the history from a U.S. intelligence agents, which was that basically all of the story of the theory, the narrative about al-Zarqi and what he was and al-Qaeda in Iraq was uh, that we needed a villain, someone identifiable to the, for the public to latch on to, and we got one, and we were paying people, you know, anybody, taxi drivers, you know, Iraqi bombs, whatever, drug addicts, giving them 10 grand a time to tell us information, give us information about uh, how horrible al-Zarqi was and what he was doing. And then ISIS formed out of his group, and we're kind of quiet, but the current leader of ISIS ice cream, whatever, is a guy who for three or four years, up until 2009, was in U.S. military custody. That's, I think, al-Baghdadi, right. a guy with Rolex watches and stuff. And he was in U.S. military custody until 2009, captured in Iraq. Then they accidentally let him go. And he then, a couple of years, years later, appears and, and starts to gain traction in Iraq and in Syria. And then things don't go too well in Syria for these paid mercenaries. So they all, because of partly to do with uh, Russia's uh, influence in Syria in, in terms of supporting Syria and providing military assistance to Syria, NATO uh, didn't get to bomb them. And uh, and things weren't going too well for that phony proxy civil war, overthrow coup, etc. Of, of Assad. So these guys all flee into Iraq or just take off from Syria into Iraq and um, pick up a bunch of Humvees and man pads and lots of money left for them accidentally by the U.S. military. Well, they kind of give it to the Iraqi army, but then the Iraqi army were like, the hell with this, you know, we don't want to be in the army, and just left them all there. And uh, this ISIS group came and took them all and started taking over northern parts of Iraq and oil fields and et cetera, et cetera, and it's all good, you know. Yeah, and, and it's kind of like the so dis- discord in the Middle East. That's what the U.S. does, you know. When it's a bit jittery about things, things aren't going my way. Flood the place with mercenaries and stir shit up, make it all crazy, so no one knows what's going on except us. Even though we don't really know what's going on, but it's better that it's all chaotic rather than going in the direction we, we don't want it to go. You know, yeah. it's kind of like mess up the chessboard when you're losing a game of chess. 
tip it over and scatter all the pieces all over the place and kind of give yourself an opportunity to restart the game type thing, you know? So we've heard so much from, from Russian commentators of various various levels of inside knowledge all year, and all the way up to Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, the same day, the West follows this pattern of controlled chaos, mm-hmm. that there is some method to the madness, they think, and it's nothing changed in 2014. Maybe you could just say it got worse. It's just more and more of the same. You, you get bombings now, mass killings that are in the hundreds, like the one in Pakistan last week. Uh, well, it can't, it's just more violence, more just produce more chaos. This, yeah, this it kind of makes sense. In the, but it's done deliberately. It's if just, you imagine that you're an empire, right, and you're controlling or you're you control a big community of people or a country with communities in the country and stuff, and and they're all under your control and you're they're doing what you say and you send in your police down again to keep them keep them down keep them subservient, and then you realize that if you have a number of these communities are getting together and they're all having meetings weekly meetings and they're all discussing, you know maybe we don't want to live under this regime anymore this the rule of this external power maybe you know let's think this through and see if we can find a better way and stuff, you know um. You don't want to be seen to be going in there and beating heads and, you know, you know, suppressing freedom and democracy that you promote. So the next best thing is to have somebody else come in, a bunch of nutcases come in and turn over their, their meeting halls and wreck the tables and shoot up the place and kill a few people and throw some bombs around and just just wreck it, wreck what they're yeah. trying to do, basically. You know, any country that's trying to make in, in the Middle East that, that is trying to you know, uh, chart a new course, a more independent course away from the U.S. Well, you just wreck it, wreck their society. And a very good way to wreck their society is to have a bunch of paid, you know, tens of thousands of paid mercenaries, nutjob psychopaths, who will go and kill and shoot and maim anybody for as long as you pay them enough. But at the same time, there is a trend. As we mentioned, there is this increase in violence overseas, Middle East, around Russia. Economic violence, financial violence, media violence. That's why it just lies bigger and bigger. Domestic violence, like you saw and co. Poor, more and more demonstration. And I'm wondering if the increase in violence is not the main symptom of the declining empire that is clinging to its past power and for only tool, a desperate tool. As only violence. Yeah, well, the, the U.S. and the U.K. have two main exports: death and weapons. That's that's what they do. And they're net exporters. Well, but at the same time, and we didn't mention it yet. In 2014, I might be wrong, but it seems to me that demonstration violence within the country, within the U.S., have been increasing as if people. Are Demonstration all over the world, demonstration in Europe against the EU, demonstrations uh, against uh, yeah. the Israeli uh, attack against uh, Gaza civilians, the demonstration against police violence in the US. Do you notice it's not true? Yeah, sure. There's, there's been a lot this year. I mean, there were protests, the scale of which haven't happened in the US since the 1960s. I mean, it's been called a new civil rights movement. Um, uh, across Europe, anti-austerity protests. Again, same pattern in 2014, maybe more. 
just bigger numbers. I think there were up to 2 million people at a protest in Rome on one day. And that was an organized one. So it wasn't a spontaneous reaction to something. Like perhaps the Ferguson, Missouri protest started in the U.S. So that was an organized anti-austerity, which has been a theme, at least since the 2008 financial crisis. They, they all have different characters. I mean, there's something I learned this year that you really, really, really got to discern or at least hold back judgment when you hear about something revolutionary happening somewhere. Do, do I lend my support to this or not? Even just in my mind, whatever about actual support. Because the Arab Spring, for example, takes on a new meaning in light of what we've seen happen in Ukraine, Maiden, and what we predicted now will happen in Turkey. Or look at Hong Kong this year, too. Exactly. Yeah. China as well. I mean, five years ago, we all wouldn't have gone, oh, oh, yeah, China is bad. You know, uh, certainly I speak for myself. I would have been like, yeah, yeah, for sure. China is totalitarian. And then, yes, that's more or less a good thing, right? Yeah. Speaking of... Uh, but context <clears throat> can change everything. Speaking of China, everybody knows that, uh, everybody knows the Tiananmen Square, right, from um, 25 years ago when yeah. there were... That was terrible what happened there. Pro-democracy, um, supposedly, student protests in this big... Yeah. Uh, Freedom. Uh, Tiananmen Square in Beijing, and uh, everybody knows that the evil commie Chinese went in and opened fire and slaughtered. Uh, it was awful. It was hundreds or thousands of people, right? It was awful. This is all over the Western media at the time. Well, apparently, there's WikiLeaks have released some cables from the U.S. State Department going back to that time uh, that revealed that there were no massacre. There was no massacre in Tiananmen Square. That the police in Tiananmen Square just had uh, normal riot gear with batons. And um, yet the media at the time and since then continues to refer to it and refer to effectively a big lie that they told at the time that there were that there were the official record you're looking up on. on Somebody to be looking at them. Hi guys, I think we've uh, lost our hosts, so we are experiencing some technical difficulties. If we just want to hang tight, and uh, we'll see if we can get these guys back online and in the meantime we'll play some music oh, here's a good one Uh, that was some musical interlude to keep you entertained while we lost our connection <laughs> and we're trying to get it back. Uh, talking about that wasn't man. bacon music, uh, Bo. That was uh, Bugger the Bankers. Not something we would advise you to do literally, but uh, figuratively for sure. Um, and to enjoy that. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tiananmen Square was not as we remember it. No. Talking about the fantasy of history. Yeah. We all know about Bastille Day. Bastille Day, French Revolution, the Declaration of Human Rights. Highly symbolic moment, no? The taking of uh, the Bastille jail. You would say that, you're French. Well, 
<laughs> Wait for the end of the story. Do you know how many inmates were in the Bastille jail when it was liberated, quote-unquote, by a citizen thirsty for freedom and equality? Thousands. Yeah, almost. There were seven. Louis XVI has decided to close the jail. It was closing, and there were, I think, something like 15 guards. That's Bastille Day. Oh, yeah? They liberated seven people from a prison that was going to be closed down? Yeah. That's not quite as glorious as, as I read about it in the, uh, in the official history book. Are you trying to tell me the official history books aren't accurate? No, I would not dare. Better not. Because I don't know what I'd do. I might have an aneurysm. My head might explode. It might hurt my brain. I don't like when my brain hurts. <laughs> Just give me the give me the black and white story, please. None of your fancy complex theories and nuanced details and nuances of grey requiring me to think critically about things. How dare Joe, you? Joe, things aren't so black and white. These protests. There are some good reasons, some bad reasons, and a lot of mixed reasons, you know? Mm. I think... I think what connects all of it is that emotionally or at some other level rather than just the reasons people say, I'm, that's it, I've had enough, I'm going out in the street. Yeah. People are stressed. They're responding to stresses in their environment. They're responding to, mm-hmm. I have less money now to pay the same bills I struggled with for last month. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do? They are responding to just the constant visual bombardment of images of war, even if they're not directly affected by it. The horror stories that come out every day, you know, this woman in Australia who killed eight kids. I mean, just this has its toll on people and I have to do something about it. I must do something. And I think there's a large motivator for people getting out on the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, it's and it's going ongoing to this day. I mean, they don't seem to be showing any sign of, of stopping or this process doesn't show any sign of abating because I think just yesterday in the mall, in mall of America, which is, I don't know if that's a chain or something, but it's a big mall in Minnesota. There were maybe four or 5,000 people uh, of all shades um, arrived and were singing songs, basically protesting against the, the same thing, which is police brutality, you know. Um, and kind of stop people in their in their Christmas shopping. It's still extravaganza, small, you know? though. I mean, I don't want to sound too pessimistic, but there's still very small numbers, you know? I mean... How much more police brutality and injustice and poverty do people need to really all just get out there? I'm surprised, actually, because I thought well, no, there'd be none. It, it will yeah. always be small numbers. It's only ever a, a maximum certain yeah. range of people who care. But that range has been enough in history to change things. So it's it's not bad. It's an, yeah. I but, mean, this is the United States. We're talking about two years ago, there was like no reaction. There was the Occupy Wall Street movement. It was crushed and then more or less silenced. Yeah. This is good. This is a good product. And to anyone who says it's unpatriotic or in, in any way disparaging of these protests, no way. This is the most patriotic thing you can be giving your, at least your moral support well, to. Forget about patriotism. It's humanism. Yeah. Uh, to be in country, beyond countries. But this being said, I think the insurrection phase, when you look at history, is quite frequent. Insurrection... People getting pissed off and demonstrating or even getting hysterized, violent, for good reason or bad reasons, whatever. But what is disheartening, history shows that 
the fruits of the revolution. Either it would be repressed in blood, usually these are the genuine, genuine revolutions or movements by the people for the people, and the, and the other ones that are not repressed, they are sidetracked, and they lead to uh, results that go against the interest of the people. So what is most important is that the insurrection phase is the counter-revolution, is the establishment of the new order. And that's where people have to be vigilant. Once they have to manage to remove the old order, the old leaders, that's where they get screwed with the new leaders who say, yeah, we're revolutionary for you, and meet the new boss, same as the old boss, or usually worse than the old boss. French Revolution with the terror yeah. that followed, that was the new order. That was I don't even think we, I don't even think we can hope for any kind of a. I'm just inter- I'm just happy to see a few people protesting. Even if it doesn't have any effect, and yeah. we, all, we all go down yeah. and it becomes a it becomes a slave planet. At least a few people will have will have stood up. But there's a few. Uh, just recently, there's a couple of interesting uh, shootings have occurred. One yesterday in New York, and another one today in Florida, mm-hmm. uh, where two policemen in New York were shot by an African American guy, just kind of assassinated. And apparently he was angry about uh, police brutality, so he went and shot some cops. And another guy uh, today, although I'm not sure of all the details, in, but it seems a similar situation where somebody just walked up to a, cop, uh, a policeman and shot him. Um, so, I mean, you have to wonder, I don't know, I mean, that could be a genuine reaction <clears throat> to the police brutality, or it could be something that the FBI thought of. Yeah. Well, my first, first, yeah. my first smell is it's, it's got to be something, a uh, response from the authorities. Yeah. If you remember, yeah. these are people who are capable of, of Sandy Hook. Sandy Hook. So, yeah, we're looking at the situation where they're trying to garner support for the police by, and the best way to get support for the police from the public is to have a few of them shot by people. Yeah. Because there's, there's, yeah. there's too much sympathy for the ordinary citizens, the blacks in, in the U.S. who are being brutalized by the police. So we've got to balance it out a little bit. So let's go and kill a few cops. Mm. Makes sense. And most people with conscience, the ones that are protesting, wouldn't go as far as to kill no. another human being. Or well, I don't know. That's a, Maybe if you're really question, angry, you know? but... Yeah, if you're a bit deranged or angry or whatever, but... Well, the, but you see, they have, they have this control theory, chaos theory. Uh, the, an element of it may be, well, if we can provoke them, get them going enough, they'll copycat and start behaving as hmm. we do. Um... And then what they think they control, but that could seriously backfire. And you have to control both sides because when you kill cops, opinion, there's a reaction on the side of the cops. Yep. If you have a lot of psychopathic right. cops in the US, well, not even psychopathic cops. That's gonna that take that, a berserk. Those two more. Yeah, not even psychopathic cops. Those two because uh, psychopathic cops probably don't care that their own are being killed. In a certain extent, yeah. it's the ordinary cops. That will be influenced by that because they have a real sense of, uh, you know, fraternity, Sorry, yeah, yeah. solidarity, and duty. Yeah. Well, no, not duty, but they have a sense of when one of their own is killed, yeah. they have a sense of solidarity yeah. with them and they revenge, and they go out and take revenge. So, I mean, that strategy, if you're a thinking person, you would have to foresee that it's not just about getting support for the police; it's about escalating. Exactly. Earlier this year. Pierre wrote a book, Earth Changes and the Human Cosmic Connection, in which he synopsized and detailed a lot of different phenomena that are occurring on this planet, only some of which are man-made global warming 
theory for why the planet, the, the, the climate, and more than just the climate, the actual biosphere, the actual planet itself in terms of earthquakes and other seismic activity seems to be on the increase. Uh, there was a recent report that caught my eye. We, we haven't had, we didn't, I don't think you had any evidence for this. We, we, put, it, we put it out there. It was, it was in your book here that the increase in earthquakes and in volcanic eruptions in the last decade is down to a minute but recorded slowdown in the rotation of the Earth. Now, they put it in the context of, well, this happens periodically every few hundred years. The speed of the rotation slows down a little or it increases a little. It's the pleasure. first time they have actually tied the two. It's plagiarism. I'm going to ask for compensation for damage. <laughs> oh, yeah? Well, but, yeah. Uh, well, the, the, whatever about the explanation for it, the observation is most interesting. I mean, in 2013, they had a record number of volcanic eruptions. We are on track this year to beat that. I think it's something like 96 volcanoes erupted this year. Right now, there's 39 active. I checked the reports today, and hundreds under alert, or you know, with minor activity. And then, if you count, if you're counting all the underground, undersea uh, volcanoes, the, the list doesn't stop. I think because you, you didn't used to listen to hear so much about them, but the de the massive animal deaths, uh, the deep sea animals that are uh, coming up? up to the surface. I mean. Strange light seen over the ocean. I mean, there's been a lot of things over the uh, oceans, and there's more volcanoes undersea than inland. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it's very partial information we get about volcanic activity. With the globe covered uh, by 70% uh, seas and oceans, and uh, most undersea volcanoes are not monitored. Mm -hmm. Few of them are in shallow waters. Uh, so most of the this volcanic activity occurs underwater. Well, what else for weather? For strange weather, it was a crazy year. I think. I mean, there was. Can you remember another one? Was the one in Iquique in Chile, eight point two. Well, hi. Well, there have been some studies that the rate of earthquakes doubled uh, in 2014 for mm -hmm. earthquakes over six magnitude. Mm -hmm. In April, they had the most ever. Strong earthquakes over six for one month. Now, most ever, their records only go back to the seventies. And what you notice is that more and more they're happening in a chain, in in closed locations and within short periods of time, one after the other after the other, uh, and not just in the ring of fire. I mean, everywhere. Yeah, and as we explain in this book, the slowdown of the Earth is one of the cause of increased volcanoes and. Uh, seismic activity, which is closely related. In both cases, you have movements in the crust, in the lithosphere, that triggers a seismic activity, earthquakes, or volcanoes that are just a manifestation of increased local pressure uh, under the crust, leading to release of magma. So that's very correlated, very similar, actually. So not surprising that both are on the rise in a similar pattern. 2014 was a record-breaking wildfire season, especially in northern climates. Now, you remember stories like wildfires breaking out in Tibet, Norway, Alaska, 
Siberia last March. I mean, they were barely out of winter. And uh, and here it correlates too to this uh, slowdown and uh, crust deformation. We call it earth opening up. Earth opening up, more earthquake, more volcanoes, and more outgassing as well. Outgassing with cometary activities being probably the two main causes of those very unexpected uh, wildfires that, uh, that occurs in a cold, wet uh, environment. And we don't have the final count yet, but uh, I suspect that fireballs also increased this year. There was a big meteor actually fell, that fell in Nicaragua as well. Yeah, this being said, maybe Neil has more, uh, more data than me. I think it went up for a while. They went down. It yeah, was a kind of. A, was around September, October, I think. Yeah, pretty quiet. and they went up again. But we can hypothesize that uh, this. Uh, this cometary cluster cloud accompanying the hypothetized uh, solar companion is not homogeneous. So you can have maybe uh, a first cluster of cometary bodies, then uh, counts down, and then a second cluster, probably bigger since closer to the companion, uh, might approach the Earth. The number for fireballs this year, we're using a baseline of the American society, media societies reported events that they then go and research and confirm that it, something happened. I don't know who they confirmed, but probably with NASA. Um, the total they gave for last year was 3,560. 3, so far this year, 2014, 3,628. That's not much of an increase on last year. However, last year's one almost tripled. Or, no, not even tripled. I would say it doubled on 2012's total. So that might account for an apparent lag. We didn't notice as many fireball reports in the summer. We yeah. came back with a bang in September. That's an annual average, 2014, about uh, 4,000. Yeah. But you have almost two months, or a bit more than two months, that were dead. So it means this total applies to 10 months. And it's the same as for the 12 months of 2013. So the monthly frequency increase during the active month, yeah. uh, the 10 months. It's hilarious listening to the media try to explain it. Um, a, a common theme in recent, in, in say the fall and now in winter, in the reporting of it, is that, well, you generally tend to get more of these bright fireball events later in the year. And I said, oh, really? Because just two years ago, there was a huge cluster in February, with the Chelyabinsk one, I think it was two years ago, oh, no, it was last year. Anyway, there was a, a series of them in February, March, and April, and on each month, they came up with a, a news by term to explain it. Oh, that's the February fireballs, March. Oh, that's the March fireballs. You know, they happen all the time. April. Uh, that's the April fireballs. But we didn't have the same kind of cluster this year. It happened at the tail end of the year. Oh, well, that's the the holiday fireball. That's Santa and his reindeer fireballs. It's a fallacy, but it's a smart move because, indeed, there are, there's a lot of clusters, cometary clusters, that are periodic, that has a period that is one year. They're stationary, and every year, the Earth, which orbit, crosses this cloud. The Geminids, the Taurids, the Orionids, etc., etc. But uh, the location of those clouds 
are very well identified and the date entering and exiting those clouds is very identified too in marriage. So when you have a high commitment activity outside those dates, it means it is an unusual, non-periodic, uh, non-listed cloud that we encountered. We uh, we have Tom from North Carolina on the phone, on the line. Sorry. Hi, Tom. Are you there? I'm here. Hi. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I just wanted to get on here and thank you so very much. I've been listening since uh, your first radio show, actually, and I think you're doing a great service to all those out there that uh, can't find much of anything to really think about from other news uh-huh. sources. So uh, I didn't want to interrupt what you were talking about, but I just want to make sure I got on here before you were done and let you know how much I appreciate what you do. I've spent a lot of years, seems like, on this planet with uh, not much to really think about and get truth from, so that's pretty much well, it in a nutshell. All right, well, that's very sweet. Uh, we appreciate it, Tom. Thanks, Merlin, and uh, well, it's, it's calls like that and people like you that, uh, you know, keep us, uh, keep us going, you know? Yeah, I Make think there's it, a lot uh, of us out here that, that just don't. Uh, get to say thank you, but uh, I want to be one of the few anyway. All right. Okay. That's it. Well, thank you. you have a, have a good day, Tom. Yeah, you too. Thank you. All right. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Merry Tom. Christmas. Yeah. Happy holidays, y'all. Happy holidays. Yep. Bye bye. All right. Bye. Bye. I was gasping. Oh, oh. Yeah, <coughs> sorry. Yeah. Thanks for your call. I just want to get to that before I forget. You mentioned outgassing um, on Earth. And this is something, here's a spanner that works for any explanation that exclusively happening to our planet or in any way man-made. In 2005, they noticed for the first time the presence of methane on Mars. Well, recently, they, you know, they've got, got a few different, like, uh, Orbiters either around Mars, they of course had a something land on Mars. I can't remember the name of that probe. But they noticed for the first time that there are actual pockets of methane being birthed out clouds, like super high concentrations that last only for like hours and then they're gone. So that's happening on Mars as well. Like the global warming that was measured on Mars, we call it on Mars and on Venus because the the same cause, this approaching a nemesis, uh, induced this uh, slowdown in the spin rate of the planets, not only Earth, but also Venus, Mars, and all the planets of the solar system. And this slowdown, in turn, induced this uh, opening up of the crust of each planet, hence the outgassing uh, that was observed on, on Mars. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Um there wasn't any kind of memorable fireball like the Chelyabinsk one. But there was what the meteorite it? in Nicaragua. That landed on the ground? Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's been plenty of them flying through the skies, booming, all sorts of stuff, and the media is still boring me to death by producing regular reports on 
People in this locale, usually in America, people in this town, you know, heard strange boom last night, you know, and we're still, still trying to figure out what it is, or what it was. I'm like, you know what? You can find out what it was by just checking all of your previous reports uh, where you said exactly the same thing and maybe getting a clue for a moment and looking around you and saying, you know, Jelly events, you know, just put a few dots together and come up with a conclusion. Once you've done your duty and gone to the kind of uh, the U.S. Air Force, uh, local Air Force base, and yeah, we didn't know any planes, and you know, and go to NASA, and NASA tells you, yeah, there was no um, meteorite showers in the area at that time, or whatever, or, you know, whatever they either go to all different people to try and find a rational explanation for it, and then they say, well, that's all the rational explanations, and none of them fit, so we don't know what it was. People hear these booms all around the place all the time. So, you know. So what they know, they say they don't know. And for like MH370, when they don't know, they say that they know. Oh, yeah. There was one in Brazil that um, freaked a lot of people out because they saw it. There was no kind of trying to cover that up. Actually, the same with the Nicaragua one. They just publicly stated, yes, this is a meteor. But in Brazil... There's no video footage of anything arriving from outer space, but there is video of the sky glowing and flashing as if like an electrical storm was taking place. Um, there are other reports, of course, of strange glowing lights in the Pacific and so on, but this one, I was trying to understand it, but I saw something else also happened on Mars that might be related. Comet sighting spring didn't actually hit Mars, but they were kind of worried that it might. But it came so close that there's a report that it triggered a mind-blowing meteor shower. There are, here we go. There are three NASA orbiters around the planet. They moved them out of the way so they wouldn't be impacted. And for good reason, because uh, one of them has an instrument that picked up uh, major changes in the planet's atmosphere as dust the tail of a comet, basically the outer atmosphere of Mars, causing a massive upper atmosphere high-energy collision that caused the thin air over like a third of the planet to actually glow. And not just, you know, momentarily. It glow for a while. They didn't say how long. but Yeah, that's more than a collision suggests a purely mechanical phenomenon. Yes. The glow suggests a, a discharge-type event that suggests... Uh, that cometary body, bodies are not electrically neutral. What have we been positing for for a while now? We have a, another 11th hour call on the line here. It's Lucy from California. Hi, Lucy. Hi. Um, I might be changing the course of the discussion here, but um, I was wondering, um, I try to follow the news as best as possible, you know, looking at various sources, um, New York Times, New Yorker, um, and I was wondering, do you have, or in Al Jazeera website, do you have any sources that you find are unbiased that, I, I just feel that, you know, I try to look at different sources, but I always feel there's, I'm not getting to the root of things. Um, do you have any news sources that you highly respect? Well, we have our own news source. It's, I don't know if you're aware of it. It's called uh, SOT.net, S-O-T-T.net, and we do a... Uh, are you aware of that? No, I'm not, actually. 
Okay, well, it's a website called SOTT.net. It's our website, basically, and we try to do uh, a broad overview of pretty much everything of of significance or importance that is going on in the world on a daily basis. We collect articles from uh, many different sources, so you don't have to, basically, and we comment on them, and we also produce our own kind of editorials and opinion pieces based on uh, our analysis of the news, the you know breaking news or the important news of any given day or the past weeks. But it's updated uh, repeatedly, 24 hours a day, so it usually has all the most important stuff in a various and uh, in a broad range of different uh, categories. You know, from politics to kind of science to psychology to health to um, kind of weird earth changes type thing, you know, climate change. High strange. And even high strangeness, you know, anomalous events, all of that kind of stuff. So it's SOTT.net. That's one we'd recommend. Others, there's plenty of others um, out there, but they tend to be a bit more uh, focused on one area only. I'm not sure what you're particularly looking for, uh, if it's (laughs) politics or if it's something Well, I I really like to try to understand better, you know, what's going on in, you know, with the ISIS, um, you know, situation and and try to get, again, some unbiased um, accounts of, of that. Right. Well, yeah, I would say, I mean, I'm not, I'm not kind of tooting my own horn here, but I would say if you, probably the best thing to do would be to go check out the SOTT.net. And then follow the links because in the titles of most of the articles there are the links to uh, other sources, so you'll be, get an idea of where that article comes from. If it's not our own article, it'll be from another website, and you can go to that link and check other articles on that topic on that website. Okay, great. Thank you so much. All right. Well, uh, thanks for your call. Thanks for listening. Okay. Bye. All right. Have a good day. Bye-bye. All right, folks, I think we're going to, uh, unless Neil's got some breaking news there, which it looks like he does by the <laughs> expression on his face. <laughs> Go on, Neil. Well, it's Christmas. With a view to entering 2015, a question from a thought reader, Penelope, who asked, I understand that you guys, you thought editors, on the one hand you speak of uh, possible impending environmental catastrophe from commentary bombardment along the lines of described by Klub and Napier. On the other hand, though, we seem to be on the face, on the verge of World War III. She wanted to know what's going on here. Is all of this a charade to cover up, to disguise celestial intentions, as was phrased by Victor Klub? Or is it something else? Because you seem to be pretty convinced that World War Three is inevitable from what's going down. This is Penelope from where? She's a Sotnet reader. Okay. Um, I, th- I think it's both. <laughs> it's not the tradition. I, d- I don't think World yeah. War Three is going to go down. Um, I think we mentioned it before that our analysis of the situation is that despite all of the shenanigans and all the chaos and all the fear-mongering and terrorism and threat analysis and threat promotion that goes on on the uh, you know, in the world out there by governments and by the media, um, their main agenda at the kind of highest levels is to keep the population as kind of uh, willing or unconscious kind of, you know, slaves and producers and uh, supporters, essentially, of the system. You know, I mean, these people, these rich, the elite of this world, despite what you may believe or what you may have 
being told they're not rich immensely or massively rich or rich beyond uh, imagination as a result of their own industriousness or their own efforts is because they essentially use people, ordinary people on this planet to do the work for them and they in a, in a, in a kind of literal way they they feed off and enrich themselves off the energy of the sweat of the brow of the ordinary person in the street in this world. So kind of like a like a good farmer, uh, they're not about to just wipe out their 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 herd uh, because the herd is what feeds them effectively. You know, they want to control them and keep them uh, productive and uh, quiet and complacent. So the idea that there would be a nuclear war uh, that would be allowed would kind of go against their whole raison d'etre of, of these kind of you know elite of this world. Uh, because if they kill large numbers of the population, who's going to do all the work for them? Who's going to keep them in the conditions that, 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 to which they've become accustomed? Uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't some psychos out there in positions in the U.S. and in Europe and different places who would like to push a button and you know blow up Russia or something, uh, and even Russia likewise, which would be understandable. But I think there is a kind of a higher power in this in this world that kind of sits above the, these overt politicians in the world and the cycles and different think tanks and the different institutions who form government policy uh, who control them effectively and have that final say. And their final say is, you know, keep the people distracted, keep them afraid, keep promoting the threat, keep uh, forcing them by the promotion of that threat to look to the government for protection, i.e., and that way they'll be more complacent and continue to serve us. Um, that's the agenda. That's what they... Uh, that's effectively what all the fear mongering is about. Fear mongering is about it's to keep people servile, essentially. So I don't think, and that's why I don't think there. That's why I think there had never been a nuclear war since the invention of, of nuclear weapons. They've never been used in that way because it would be kind of self-destructive in a really extreme way by these people, and there are people who are a little bit more savvy uh, than, than others in that respect. But that doesn't mean it's a good situation. Obviously, I've just described humanity as basically. A, a nation or a world, a population of slaves, um, which isn't <laughs> ideal to say the least. So, um, but you know that can get much worse. It could, you can, the kind of that kind of system that we live under can actually create an environment on this planet that would be uh, technically or theoretically worse than the results of a nuclear war. I mean, people can be can uh, a police state can be imposed kind of globally and. People can really be turned into almost literal slaves. Uh, there can be a lot of people killed, etc., but on a kind of piecemeal basis, you know, to terrify and terrorize other people. And life on this planet could become uh, much, much worse than it is now. And it, we don't see any reason to think that it's not ultimately going in that direction. The current policies and the current people in power are allowed to continue in power. And I think that's where the idea of um, some kind of a cosmic reba- rebalancing. Uh, of that extreme negativity on the planet comes into play. Um, the rulers of this world themselves don't destroy uh, the system that they've created, a system of slaves that keeps them in their positions of power. But the universe, at least, uh, if we can call it that, has a little bit more um, empathy or concern for the ordinary people on the planet who are being mercilessly and increasingly mercilessly abused these people in power, and that's the mechanism that might come in to kind of like in some way shake things up in a very definitive way and maybe 
to some extent, wipe the, wipe the slate clean. Um, so in a way, what I'm saying is that, is that it's, it's pretty bad that they won't have a war because a nuclear war might be the solution to everybody's problems mm-hmm. on a global scale and that it might just wipe it all clean and so people could start again. And, you know, it might go in the same direction, but at least you have a fresh start. But the people in power on this planet won't do that because they're benefiting from it. So in that case, there's a cosmic mechanism that might come in that in some way, like Pierre talks about in his book, that might induce some kind of a natural disaster or comet-born disaster type thing that would serve that function. Because, you know, this kind of entropy and negativity and abuse of the elite uh, against the population of this planet can't continue indefinitely. And to explain why the universe has such a inbuilt mechanism to rebalance, to reset humanity, life on Earth, so, somehow, uh, Joe mentioned mercy. It can be also analyzed from a purely evolutionary perspective. When you look at life, the main driver is the opposite of entropy. It's a permanent strive towards more complexity, more organization, more intelligence. And we can posit, hypothesize that if humanity doesn't respect this fundamental universal rule, evolution towards more intelligence, more organization, then there is this inbuilt regulation mechanism that intervenes, reset, and in an attempt to put humanity, life on Earth, on the right evolutionary track. Which is wipe them out and start again. Correct. Clean the slate. And with those happy holidays. Practical level uh, for people like Penelope, the the thing is we can't predict the future. There are many possible futures. Everything could happen at the same time or one of those things that we um, suspect may happen uh, just looking at the pattern. Uh, But the point is to Gather knowledge, be prepared, because the less stress you have, the more you've thought about things, the more you're prepared, the less stressed you'll be to cope with whatever's to come. Yeah, and I'm glad you uh, saved us from ending on that uh, somewhat uh, depressing <laughs> note that may not be entirely in keeping with the happy holiday season that we find ourselves in. Uh, yes, you know, don't take things too seriously, and, uh, you know, if you really have to go there, just understand that, you know, everybody's got to die someday. Uh, even if, you know, the world could, you can die in some kind of a nuclear war and be quick and easy or, or or slow and painful or you can get run over by a bus or, uh, you know, you can die of cancer or whatever, but you've got to go out at some point anyway. Well, so why would, well, well, it's true and everybody recognizes that. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact is I don't understand, I don't really know, you know, while it's kind of understandable, there's no real reason to fear either nuclear war or, you know, because what you fear in nuclear war is that you might die, right? But, okay, if you're you're young, you might say, oh, I'm too young to die or something, but, but, you know, really, I mean, if you subscribe to the idea of reincarnation and all that kind of stuff, you know, you can put it in a philosophical perspective where you can just kind of, like, not put too much emphasis on it, not get worked up about it, and just live your life, the days that are left to you, to, to do the best you can and learn as much as you can and have as much fun as you can. And, and understand. I mean, nobody should distance themselves from or, or try and ignore the fact that, like I just said, you're all going to die. Everybody's going to die, right? Nobody, everybody admits that, okay? Everybody, all of us here, we all admit that, yeah? We're all going to die. Uh-huh. So everybody listening should admit the same thing to themselves, right? You put it off, but 
maybe yeah. maybe she's a mother, and I can understand well, this fear. Not a different. Yeah, especially for for the mothers, and uh, fear can be uh, the best motivator if it's uh, used properly. And so maybe a solution is to use this fear, not being overwhelmed by it, but use it to do uh, uh, to do the best for the the rest of the time we have on planet Earth to see reality as it is, objectively, and uh, yeah. do our best and uh, see what comes. Absolutely. And what will be coming will be another behind-the-headline show in two weeks' time because we are taking next Sunday off because we have to... We have to celebrate. <coughs> celebrate what? Christmas. Caesar Mass. A Caesar Mass. And so ties. We have to take a little break and do uh, some more research for the show that comes a week later. Exactly. <laughs> well, we never really take breaks. We'll be working. We'll be, we'll be working away, of course. But yes, Stay we'll just... a new article. Because uh, next week is the 28th. And also, that's with the caveat that if something big happens between now and then, we'll probably do a show anyway, if it's big enough. Uh, but if not, then, yeah, we'll see you in New Year. Assuming there is a New Year and nothing catastrophic happens <laughs> every now and then. If it does, you know, well... It was nice. It, it, was, it was nice. <laughs> nice, in heaven. nice knowing you. And um, well, it was a good time for it to happen because most people around this time of year have a few bottles of uh, their, their favourite... Uh, Bubbly. Their favourite alcoholic drink <laughs> on hand. That's been for emergencies, so, you know, it won't be too hard. <laughs> anyway, um, before we ramble on anymore, or not, I ramble on anymore, and uh, discredit this show entirely, I will uh, <laughs> say thanks to our listeners and to our callers and our chatters and to the guys here and everybody else. Happy holidays. And happy holidays. And we will see you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.